Good morning again. How are y'all doing? All right. That's, yeah. yeah that's, it's too much. Um, today, we're going to be continuing our Prologue to Messiah series. Uh, and for those of you who are new uh, or who missed all the other times when we explained it, we are looking at some prophecy in the Old Testament that points to Christ, that, that leads up to the Christmas season that we so begrudgingly trudge to because it is the worst season. It, it, it eats into Thanksgiving. It's just the worst. Um, today, we're going to talk about the fun one, Messiah Rejected and Broken. And we've got a few passages to go over here, a couple of psalms, spoiler alert. Um, and uh, this one, I think, is interesting because it seems like so far, most of for most of the other sermons that we've talked about, we've talked about like the really powerful parts uh, of where uh, prophecy in Christ displayed God's power, and here we're going to uh, show his vulnerability, if you will. Um, but let's jump in. The first piece of scripture that we're going to look at is in Psalm 118. Uh, it's not necessarily the whole of Psalm 118. There's a specific verse, or a couple of verses in there that I wanted to look at, but it's important to understand the, uh, the context in which those verses were written. And for me, the context doesn't really make much sense. So I, I had mostly thrown this up here for me to help me understand what's going on here. Um, first bit, the authorship um, is all, most of the time attributed to David, right? He, he wrote lots of Psalms, so it makes sense. But there are some sources that I saw that suggested that maybe it wasn't actually written by David, but written by somebody who was trying to sound like David and what was written much later. So David, of course, as you remember from your Bible history very easily, uh, was right around 1000 BC. Some people think that maybe this psalm was written around 450 BC after the Jews had returned to, from exile and were attempting to rebuild their temple. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about why here in a moment. Uh, psalm 118 is the last psalm in the Hallel Psalms, which I was disappointed to discover has nothing to do with Superman. I'm so happy that at least some of you got that joke, because Superman's real name is Kal-El. I was a little bit off there. Thank you. Uh, three of you understood, and that's more than I expected. So, yeah. So I, I feel like I'm at home here. I was going to make a joke about enemies surrounding me on all sides, but there's a few friends here. Thank you. Um, a quick breakdown of Psalm 118 would look like this if, if I were to do it. And spoiler alert, I did this. So this is what it would look like. Uh, it starts off with a bit about how God's love endures forever. Uh, verses 5 through 9, the Lord is on my side. Verses 10 through 14 describe some sort of military struggle, right? So this is uh, something that David would have done a lot. He would have been in the midst of a lot of military struggles in his time. And so not only with the, uh, the language that's used in the Psalms, or David does like to praise God a lot, right? Uh, it also has descriptions of these military struggles. So it makes sense that probably a king wrote this, uh, and which, which king but David, since he wrote so many of them. Verses 15 through 21, more praising of the Lord, because that's what you do in Psalms. Verses 22 through 23, these are the verses that we're focused on, and this, the, the part about um, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So for me, these verses stick out in this psalm because they just seem so random, right? Throughout this, uh, this psalm, he's 
whoever wrote this was clearly trying to present the idea of somebody who was in the midst of some sort of struggle, but praising God regardless. And then you just got the pow, a couple of quick lines about the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and I don't know what it means. And then he just goes back to praising God like nothing happened. Like he didn't just say some really weird words, and we're just supposed to accept it, all right? Um, an interesting bit that I found that maybe lends credence, hey, my name, uh, to the idea that maybe this psalm was written later on more towards the post-exile for the rebuilding of the temple is that in the book of Ezra, which is the book around that time, he was one of the prophets, it has this line here, verse 11, you'll see on the right, do I have it? Yeah, they do. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. On the left here, I have verses 1 and verses 29 uh, are pretty much the same line in the beginning and the end. Um, scholars suspect that at the time that the, they were having whatever this ceremony was to commemorate the start of the build of the temple, that they probably recited this entire psalm as a sort of song of praise to God. Um, it makes sense to jump back to this point that I forgot to make earlier. The Hallel Psalms are Psalms 113 through 118, and they're still used today by the more devout Jewish people as a song or as a prayer of praise and thanksgiving around their major holidays. So they'll recite all those five books, if I can, no, six books, all six books of those as a prayer. And here we have a prayer of or a prayer and a song of thanksgiving is probably used at this time for this purpose. So, um, all of that to say that uh, whether or not this was actually written by David or whether or not it was written by some other psalmist trying to sound like David is probably not all that important. I think we all can all believe in the same God and have different opinions on this, so it's all well and good. I personally like to believe that David was pushed 500 years forward in time for like a week to understand what was going on, wrote it then, and then was jettisoned back to his own time, because it's way cooler that, that it happens that way. That way, we, we check both boxes. It works. But the, uh, the, the phrases that, or the uh, verses that we're looking at in particular here as a prophecy of Messiah, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, um, it's important to make sense of those of those fra or of those verses in either context if it's going to work for either one. Um, the things that I have read suggest that probably if David wrote it, then he was probably talking about himself when he initially wrote it. Right? Again, if you remember from your Bible history that you all took and took uh, great notes on, uh, when David was first appointed king. It was prophesied that a son of Jesse would be the, the king, but he didn't even go to like the first opening game ceremony to try to figure out which son it was. He was the runt of the litter. All his other brothers went, and I think it was Samuel maybe crushed it. Samuel was like, nah, dude, it's not any of these sons. It's that other one that you left at home with all of your livestock and stuff. So he would have seen himself as a stone rejected by the builders, by the people trying to build the kingdom of Israel, um, but that God had, had appointed him as the head of the, of the state, and yeah, and that, that was how he might have seen himself, especially earlier on. Um, 
If we interpret it, though, in terms of a group of people who are rebuilding the temple of Israel after having been exiled, they probably would have seen Israel itself as the stone that was rejected, the stone that was rejected by the countries around them, you know, taken into slavery and, and forced, uh, forced to do manual labor before they were just casually given back their states. Um, in either, either way, uh, throughout, throughout like the pre-Christ times and even slightly after Christ came around and did all of his stuff, we see here in uh, like Matthew 21, there's a part where Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Um, it, it's this idea that even dur during Christ's time, he would have understood it as a prophecy for himself, obviously, but even amongst the, uh, the other people, other scholars in the area would have understood it prophetically to mean somebody that, uh, that would be coming along to be some sort of Messiah that would be rejected by people in charge in some way. Um, now, I remember vaguely from one of my college classes um, that there was, and I couldn't necessarily find anything to, uh, any like evidence to support this, because I didn't look really hard because I didn't have a lot of time. Um, but if I remember right, one of my pro professors had spoken to that there, there was an idea that there might have been two messiahs to come at some point. And that's why, uh, that's possibly part of the reason why people didn't necessarily recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, the reason being that they, they had expected some sort of military leader to come in and save them from Rome. But they also had all these prophecies that point to some sort of broken and abused Messiah. And there wasn't a great way to mesh those two ideas. So there was a thought that maybe there's going to be one guy that comes along and saves us from Rome. And then maybe sometime later or something, somebody gets abused, and we don't know why, but we'll figure it out when we get there. Uh, spoiler alert, it was both at the same time. Uh, crazy how that works out. But anyway, so even for Christ, he would have, we see that he understood this prophetically, pointing towards himself, that he would be rejected, obviously, by the leaders of the church. Uh, and then uh, in 1 Peter 2, and I think there's a few other references in the New Testament, they... Uh, he points to this scripture specifically uh, as a prophecy towards Christ. So the early church also understood that this part of the text at least um, pointed towards Christ and that he was the one that fulfilled it. Um, interesting stuff. Uh, I mean, obviously we all understand like the connotations of a cornerstone of a building being somewhat important. I don't really know. I don't build buildings. I build rockets and we don't use stones. So I assume... I don't know if you know this, but I work for NASA, so I'm pretty smart. Um, but the, the connotations here, like talking about, uh, talking about how either or or both, I don't know, why not both, as the little taco girl says, um, either talking about David as being someone who was rejected by the people around him or talking about Israel as somebody rejected by the people around him, uh, it's interesting because I would say a lot of prophecy that you will see in Scripture has this sort of dual meaning going on, right? They, they start off talking about something specific that was happening in their own time, but then somehow this paints a picture of Christ, and it's weird that it all works out. It's almost like there's a giant all-knowing hand that is guiding history, 
in order to set up these illustrations of what he's going to look like later. I don't know, that sounds crazy, but I'm throwing it out there. So, the second part of scripture that we're going to be, thank you, uh, the second part of scripture that we're going to be looking at, uh, and I promise at some point this is going to be a little bit less academic and a little bit more meaningful for you, but I'm an academic guy. I like to start with my head knowledge and then move to the heart later if we ever get there. Um, the second part that I want to talk about is Psalms 22, um, and this one we are going to be looking at pretty much the whole book, uh, but I wanted to start just by showing you uh, a few pieces of scripture or a few parts of that scripture and where they correspond to in the, uh, the Gospels, right? Now, a little bit of background before we dive in. Psalms 22, this one is almost certainly written by David, and that's because there's a little note at the front at the beginning of the book that says, hey, this psalm was written by David. And clearly, we can trust anything that we read in print. So, probably written by David, um, and in it is some very agonizing writing uh, that was a little bit surprising to me, actually. Uh, just to let you in a little bit on my process, I like to wait until the very last minute to start my sermons. So I'm usually starting them at like 7 p.m. Saturday night, so I want to just, you know, clear my head, focus on what's in there, and also I'm kind of lazy, so that's just how I do things. I have to have a little bit of adrenaline. Oh, man, am I going to get this done in time in order to actually accomplish something? Um, so when I opened up this scripture and started off with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I was a little, pulled, or a little blown back, right? Was not expecting to hear, or sorry, read those words. I wasn't necessarily reading them out loud was not expecting to read those words right there. I was not well prepared to see something so impactful, but I made it through it, right? It only set me back like half an hour. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalm begins, uh, and we can already tell that this is going to be some real, some real talk, right? It echoes what Christ says uh, in verse 46, and about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, and that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, so, obviously, um, Christ is, is uh, repeating these words that he knew from Scripture. It gets a little weird when you realize that he probably gave the words to David to begin with. So, what's going on there? He's given himself his own words for later when he's going to be on the cross. Um, weird, weird little bits. Uh, in verses 7 and 8, um, you see, David wrote that all, all who see me mock at me, they make mouths at me, they shake their heads, commit your cause to the Lord, let him deliver, let him rescue the one in whom he delights. And in Matthew 27, verses 39 to 43, you see a similar sort of passage. Those who pass by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, uh, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king. Let him come down from the cross now and we will believe him. The psalmist is clearly going through some sort of troubling time and he has people mocking him. Uh, and it's weird that people mocked Christ in almost exactly the same way, despite this being a thousand years apart. Um, Verses 14 and 15, uh, sorry, obviously I'm skipping around a little bit because these are the parts that line up real well specifically. The other parts are expounding a little bit more on what David himself is actually going through. 
Um, it, this part kind of illustrates a little bit more. It seemed like, we, we don't necessarily know what it was that was going on with him at the time, but it seemed like he was experiencing some sort of great physical pain. Um, on top of that, everybody who was around him was not friendly to what was going on, mocked him for what he was doing. And on top of that, as we saw in the beginning verse, he had some reason to believe that God wasn't even there for him. The God that he had relied on so much throughout his life, he didn't know where he was at. So great physical and or emotional pain, nobody to rely on, not even God, right? But here in verses 14 and 15, we have a little bit of a description of what he was feeling like physically. I'm poured out like water. He feels like he has nothing left within him and all my bones are out of joint. Uh, interesting parallels with Christ. Um, there we go. After, after this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fill, fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. Um, sorry, that would line up well with the, my mouth is dried up like a pot's herd, pot shirt. I don't know what that word means, but, uh, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. Uh, talking about how he was suffering great thirst, how his, he felt like he was empty, uh, his heart like wax and is melted within my breast. What interesting parallel with verse 34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out somewhat indicating an extremely broken heart uh, when he experienced this. Moving on to uh, Psalm 22, just a, you know, real quick casual, they divide my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots, and it's echoed exactly. They, they reference it specifically, that let, a, let us not tear their, the clothing, but cast lots to see who will get it. That was to fulfill this specific scripture right here, saying that exact same thing. Um, so really quick then, I want to just go back to the, uh, the start of this psalm. Like I said before, it's clear that David was experiencing some sort of anguish. And when Christ was on the cross, he found it appropriate to echo those same words that the psalmist was, uh, was saying in order to express the anguish that he was going through at the time. Um, Somewhat, there are some mystical interpretations to exactly what it meant for Christ to have been on the cross at the time, right? Some people will say that he, uh, he experienced all of the agony that humanity would ever suffer there, or that he experienced the burden of all sins that all of humanity would have experienced. And whether you believe that or not is inconsequential. But the point is that while he was there, he grieved greatly. Uh, and this is the part of the part of our faith that I find the most meaningful, because we have a God that isn't too high above us to not understand what we're going through, right? Despite any sort of suffering or pain or agony, uh, he has experienced himself through the cross's events and, and through everything leading up to it. Um, and I guess I, I don't find any of the other parts of it as compelling of the, as this part, right? We, um, it is stunning to me, I think, the, just the depth of the pain that you can see in the words, even just from the beginning, but throughout the rest of this psalm. 
and for Christ to have identified with that almost exactly um, is magnificent, and it's, it's definitely something that, that should be praised. Uh, while the psalmist at the time would have recognized that there was nobody else around him to rely on, we can try to, uh, try to rely on Christ through this because he has been there before us. Um, and that, I think, is really all I have to say about it. I mean, we can, I can say it a hundred different ways, and it's going to be magnificent a hundred different times, that Christ has suffered the way that we suffer, and so he understands the pain that you're going through and all the pain that you have. So, appreciate it. I don't know. Be amazed by it. I know I am. Those are my words for today. Are there any questions? first thing is there has been evidence to suggest that people were more literate than we expected. Um, I remember reading somewhere, I don't know if you all heard the question, but it was, how did they remember scripture when they weren't as literate, right? How would they have remembered all of the stuff that was going on? Part of it was, I think they were more literate than we expected. Um, random things like drawings by kids from like 2000 B.C., little words scratched in there suggest that there was probably some level of learning about uh, how to write that existed beyond what we previously thought, right? More people knew how to write than we thought. Um, I also had a professor suggest that when you don't have the ability to write anything down, you have like a super good memory. Like you just remember everything that people say all the time because you have no other way to keep that information. Um, those are going to be my two guesses. No. You have Pharisees memorize the entire Old Testament and everything else that they did. Uh, how do you think they memorized the Psalms? Like, there's probably a lot of, here are a product you have to memorize something. Really? Here's how to learn a, a Have you ever taught somebody, taught a kid how to remember something? Got you. I remember a professor saying, and this one was super interesting to me, and I don't think it applied to the early Israelites. I think it was like African tribes, because the guy was like, he was an African missionary for like decades, right? Um, and so he talked to a lot of people over there and got to hear all of like their history and stuff. But I think he said is something like they would have, you know, tribes and they'd have people who would have to memorize the history of their tribe. Uh, and when a new person was getting trained for it, um, they would, like, if it came time to test them, right, they needed to be able to recite the entire history, the, the known history of their tribe. They'd set them up in front of the, the village, and they'd say, all right, go, start saying stuff, uh, you know, start at the beginning. And then they would just, like, like, fight and kill people around them. They would threaten them. 
they would throw stuff at them. They would have orgies around them. They would do everything they could to distract. Yeah, weird, right? Do everything they could to try to distract him, right? To try to get his mind off of what he was saying. And if you could get, get through the whole thing without stumbling, then all right, you're, you're good to go. And if not, you've got to keep working on it. But just insane, like killing people around him, threatening his very life while he's trying to get out this history. It was weird. Yeah, yeah, sorry, asterisk, again, Israel didn't do that one. But, you know, it, it attests to the, uh, the great memory skills that they would have had at the time. Are there any other questions? No, all right. Yeah? Uh, prehistoric, it's all based in stone. It just... <laughs> Who's doing communion? Zach is doing communion. I'm going to invite up Zach to talk about communion. you guys hear me okay? I can hear myself. So. Who are you? Do I need to speak up? Is that better? You're like in the front row too. <laughs> um, one, of the, one of the things that um, in, in kind of uh, continuing on what Creed mentioned about uh, Christ being, um, having gone through uh, and suffered the things that we suffer and, and being able to relate with us, uh, one of the things that many of the times impresses me about Christ and uh, his life here on earth and um, his sacrifice is, is his willingness to humble himself, to become human, uh, to set aside um, his, uh, some of his divine qualities, um, to limit himself, uh, to, to, to put upon himself the constraints of being a human being. And, uh, Taking that that notion, um, I feel like uh, this past week I've had, um, just thinking about it, nearly a half dozen opportunities where my perspective, I think, was on on certain either situations or people's opinions or uh, people's actions was challenged by an opportunity to see a different side of it than I had previously had. Um, through conversations, either directly or indirectly, my perspective on why somebody did what they did, why they said what they said, or um, the the intent, the motivation behind um, their lives and their actions uh, was challenged, and I was able to see things, and, and I think it was spur- really spurred to compassion and to understanding and to love uh, and to realize that... Um, as as wise and discerning as I try to be or, or, or aspire to be, that uh, I don't always have, um, I don't always have a, or my initial opinion, my initial thoughts are not always correct, and that there's always room for a, a greater perspective. And and I share that in 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 an, uh, as as an opportunity for me to be humbled um, and to realize that as I as I consider the opportunities 
that I have in my life to be humbled that um, I can I can take advantage of those and I can uh, allow myself my perspective um, what I believe what I think how I perceive other people to be uh, impacted by those because Christ was ultimately uh, the greatest example of humility for us in coming and living the life that he lived, um, going to the cross and suffering the things um, that we just heard about. And uh, so I, I invite you to, uh, as, we, as we partake in communion this morning, um, as we pray together, I invite you to, um, to seek humility, um, to allow Christ, allow his presence within your life to lead you into that humility, the same humility that Christ had um, as he gave up uh, his divinity to come and be fully God and fully man here on earth with us. Um, so here at the City Church, we uh, participate in uh, open communion, and what that means is that um, uh, regardless of your uh, you know opinions or doctrines, that if you um, believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he came and lived, um, that as I said, as I mentioned uh, just a few moments ago, that he was both fully God and fully man. Um, that he died to uh, as to be um, the, uh, the to pay the penalty for our sins and to restore us into relationship with God, and that you accept that, then we invite you to celebrate um, what he did with us by partaking in communion, um, which symbolizes the breaking of his body um, and the shedding of his blood for us. And uh, <clears throat> so I'm going to pray real quick, and uh, feel free to come up and share in communion with us whenever you're ready. Heavenly Father. Uh, Lord, thank you for being um, uh, the, the, the one who goes before us, um, that you have endured all things, um, that you know all things, that you perceive all things, that uh, before we were even a thought, before we were even um, uh, conceived, um, that uh, before the entire world was even conceived, that you had a plan to both to create an opportunity for us to be in relationship with you and then create an opportunity where um, that relationship could never be taken away. Lord, our, our oneness with you is the greatest gift that we could ever have. God, I pray that your spirit would be uh, restless within us uh, in the coming days. Lord, that you're that you would uh, fix our eyes upon you and that our ear would be attentive to your voice. I pray that we would continue to invite your presence in our lives in every moment. Just thank you for what you did on the cross. Thank you for facing death, for, sa- for facing the suffering uh, that you did. Um, thank you for, uh, through your resurrection, uh, for the life that you now offer us. Um, Lord, I pray that we would seek after that life with abandon and with great sacrifice. Um, We thank you again, and and we praise you um, for all the good that that life brings uh, into our lives and the lives of those around us. I pray these things in your name. Amen.